Steve? Hello, good afternoon. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good, man. You have a voice made for radio. Voice. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's why I started a podcast, just so I could use it. <laughs> Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this very special episode of Movable Dough. This episode marks the 50th interview since I started in August of 2020. I am beyond thrilled to welcome this week's guest, Eric Whitaker. Eric is a Grammy-winning composer whose music has been performed and recorded by choirs and ensembles around the world. His groundbreaking virtual choirs have united singers from more than 145 countries. In 2018, his composition, Deep Field, became the foundation for a collaboration with NASA, the Space Telescope Science Institute, Music Productions, and 59 Productions. A charismatic speaker, Eric has given keynote addresses for many Fortune 500 companies in education and global institutions from Apple and Google to TED Talks and the World Economic Forum. Eric Whitaker, welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be with you, man. So I've got so many questions. I don't even know where to begin. So I think I'll start today with the last point I mentioned in your bio. So you're an extremely charismatic speaker. <laughs> is this something you've been comfortable doing from a young age or did you did you take drama or speech in high school thank you for asking about me about it um it's funny because yeah just before we started this this uh this recording right i was saying to you that you've got the most extraordinary radio <laughs> voice um i'd ask the same of you um for me it was uh i was a student body president ah. and uh but i remember very distinctly having give those speeches as president and even for the for the election, um, I was terrified. I was nervous and shaking, and my 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 mouth would water. And then over three years, this would have been starting in my junior year, junior senior year, and then my freshman year in college, I went to this national leadership training conference. This was in Lake Tahoe, which happened to be right down the hill from where I lived. But students from all over America came, and one of the big focuses was public speaking. And I don't know that I caught the bug then, but I think maybe that's what got me used to standing in front of people and and talking. And then frankly, when I look back at, at before I started doing this for a living, where I was actually, you know, giving talks to, to these companies, I think it was just years and years and years of standing in front of every possible crowd <laughs> I could imagine and explaining, here's why I wrote this piece and sure. conducting it. You're right. And I did this in 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 assembly halls and and lunchrooms and and practice rooms just like the one that, that you're talking in right now, all over America for years and years. And I, I think that's that's where I really got started doing it. Awesome. So I want to go back a little bit further than high school. Where did you grow up? I grew up in northern Nevada. Northern um, Nevada. So, okay. That's right. So kind of near Lake Tahoe in a little town called Gardnerville. And did you have a, a musical family growing up? No, nothing. And um, I we, we had a piano at, at home. It was an heirloom. Uh, but no one played. And I can just remember, I don't know, I must have been four years old, five years old. I could just walk by and pick out tunes, you know, like huh. probably like you could. And, you know, anybody who's who's got a musical ear. 
and my parents tried to give me piano lessons and it just didn't stick. Um, so I was completely self-taught. And then around the age of 12, I guess, whatever that is, sixth, seventh grade, our, our district got a Commodore 64, which at the time was the first mass marketed computer. <laughs> and we had one of them, right, in, in the school district. And so I joined the computer club and I learned how to program in basic. That was the name of the, the yeah. language. And that led me to computer music. So bands like Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream and Jean-Michel Jarre. And then that led me to Depeche Mode and Pet Shop Boys and Erasure and You're Alphaville. And, right? Yeah, you're lucky. My my school only had Oregon Trail on our computers. So. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I played my share of Oregon Trail. Uh, anyway, that was it. So then, then um, I spent most of my high school career uh, spending every free moment in my room with synthesizer and drum machine, writing pop songs and little film scores without films. Nice. Did you always see yourself becoming a composer, or did you have different goals when you were a kid? I think if you would have asked me when I was seventeen. I actually thought I was going to be an astrophysicist. Oh, really? Which is still my first and, and biggest love. But I didn't really have any of that put together or worked out. You know, I was in calculus in high school, uh, but I don't remotely have the math to be an <laughs> astrophysicist. Um, and also, I'm not, a, I'm not a good student at all. It's not like I'm an academic. I was just fascinated by it. But I also probably thought I was going to be a baseball player and a ninja and a and hundred other things. Music was one of the things that I loved. Um, but I don't know that I imagined it being my life, certainly not classical music, pop music or film music being best. Uh -huh. Well, you know, many choral musicians in my generation, you know, in college in the late 90s, early 2000s, and singers since then as well, have feasted deeply on your music. What were you feasting on in high school? You mentioned Depeche Mode. Were there yeah. other bands or artists that were influencing you? If it had electronic instruments in it, I was into it. And frankly, if it had anything else, I wasn't so interested. Uh -huh. It's funny, right? Because now when I get to college and, and now mostly what I listen to is, is 70s prog rock and so Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and, and The Who and, and The Beatles. And, but then that just would have been way too many live acoustic instruments for me. Oh, really? So yeah, so I went deep, deep into Europop is, is what I spent most of my time listening to. That and film scores. I was just obsessed with, with film music and film scores. Um, but I think looking back, my musical vocabulary was pretty limited at the time. I certainly didn't listen to classical music at all. Yeah, well, I know you finally got back to some of that electronic music with the, with the opera uh, you wrote. With Paradise uh, Lost, yeah. Yeah, Paradise yeah. Lost. Fantastic music in, in Thank that. Thank you. I, yeah. So... As you were finishing school at UNLV, you wrote this charming little piece called Godzilla Eats Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember stumbling across this once by accident many years ago. In fact, in preparation for this, I actually showed it to my students in every period today. Um, <laughs> and I absolutely fell in love with it because it's just so different from what I expected when I saw it, it was by Eric Whitaker. Uh, could you describe this quaint little piece for our listeners who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, it's... Um... I, I used to have this more, but I, I, I guess I still do have it. It's just a, a, a love bordering on obsession for bad films. And I mean, <laughs> I don't mean bad films like, 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 oh, how funny that they're bad. I mean, bad, like, like 450, 500 people worked on this thing. They got to the end of the, the entire thing and said, yep, that's what we want to present to the world. <laughs> and it is a disaster. And a lot of those films were, you know, like 50s, 60s sci-fi movies. 
And especially yeah. the, those, not the original Godzilla, which I think is pretty good, but a lot of those Godzilla knockoffs. And so my idea was that I was going to make a score, the film score, to a truly terrible Godzilla movie. And so the first thing I did is write the script, right? And so you've got mm -hmm. the, the audience is meant to follow along a, a kind of script where, where I tell the story. And then I just scored this thing as if, as if I were not only scoring a bad film, but also that I weren't such a great composer, right? So that I try to make it as pastiche as possible and try to reference as many great composers and film composers as possible, but do it in a really cheesy one-dimensional way. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was all just for a big laugh. All right. Well, my kids absolutely loved it. Today. I read the <laughs> I read the script along uh, with the presentation, so they would know what was going on. Did they on. get it? It's funny because uh, they, there must be so many references now that are just lost. On they, them, they don't right? know who Frank Sinatra is. I mean, I, I teach middle school, but <laughs> you know, yeah, isn't that the, funny? Wayne Newton. Yeah, they would have no idea who this is, right? Liberace. Yeah, like, and then he found Liberace. He's a piano player. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it used to be kind of the, the sound of Vegas, you know. Right. And and I actually wrote it the, my first year at Juilliard when I was doing my master's degree because Tom Leslie at UNLV had asked me to write a piece for him. And it took me seven years to get my bachelor's degree. So part of it, too, was just I was so sick of Vegas when I left that I, I had this kind of fantasy about, you know, Godzilla coming and stepping all over it. That's awesome. All right. So I'd, I'd like to turn to virtual choirs for a minute. Um, so you're often considered justifiably the pioneer of the virtual choir. Uh, if I could, I'd like to actually briefly tell the, the history of the virtual choir. Cause I've, I've actually been involved from the very, very beginning. Have you? Um, so you were sent a video by a young woman named Britlin, uh, who right. recorded herself singing the soprano one line of sleep. Uh, you then posted on your blog, something along the lines of, wouldn't it be cool if about 50 people did this and created a virtual choir? Yeah. So I was one of the people that was reading your blog at the time. Nice. Um, and I think this must have been the first mention of the term virtual choir. This was in 2009. Yeah, 2009. Oh my God. Uh, several of us that were reading your blog took up the charge and we created what is affectionately now called the beta version of sleep with Wait, 100. Are you, in, are you in that? I'm I'm the conductor in that one. No way. Steve, oh, yeah. Put this together. Yeah. I'm, I'm the no only one to conduct way. an Eric Whitaker virtual choir that isn't Eric Whitaker. Yeah, before it even really... That, <laughs> yeah, yeah, before so, it was so thing. You were conducting along to the recording that existed at the time. Right, right? We, we recorded along with the polyphony track, yeah. Oh my god! And so I was conducting along with that so that the singers would have something to visually follow. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Um, anyway, so then you took the idea and said we're going to do Luxorumque and then you did Sleep 2.0 and took it further and further added your unique style and vision until your latest project Sing Gently which had over 17,000 singers from 129 countries. So here's my first question. Hmm. What do you think is the value of the virtual choir that keeps people coming back to it? Hmm. I wouldn't have known this when we started to be honest what I'm about to say but it's that it has oddly many of the same virtues that making music together in real time has, which namely is feeling part of something larger than oneself. That it's a, a wildly different experience, right? You, you, have you, besides that first one, have you been part of some of the- Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I was part of Luke's Roomque and, and Sleep 2.0 and Water Night and- Have you done all of them? Uh, I went up through four, I believe, oh and then I, I got too busy in my life. Yeah, I, I'm I, so I couldn't sorry get more. I know this. That's okay. Um, <laughs> well, so you experienced, so you know behind the oh, scenes, yeah. it, it, it couldn't be further from, from what it's like to actually make music together, right? Right. 
what we now know is that that not only anecdotally, but but in terms of hard science, that we we did a bunch of studies on people who had participated in virtual choirs, and there's almost a, an exact same physiological response to singing in a virtual choir as there is to singing in a choir huh. in person. And I believe that's because because of the social uh, implications that you are part of something larger than yourself. Yeah, you know that with that first group. Uh, we actually sort of created a chat as Scotty Haynes was putting the the video together. And I'm still in touch with some of those people from that very really? first group. I am. Yeah. We actually have a, a Facebook group for the the first virtual choir. People. Have you ever met any of them in person? I haven't. I've never met any of them Isn't in person. Extraordinary. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. It's a lot of fun. All right. So here's my second question. So after the flood of virtual choir projects through the pandemic, do you think the virtual choir has reached its limit? What do you think is next in our virtual choir space? Huh. Yeah, it's. I actually thought we'd reached the limit of virtual choir with virtual choir five. That's the one that we finished in 2018. It's mm -hmm. deep field. It was like 8,000 singers. And we premiered at the Kennedy Space Center. You know, the film was made along with NASA and the Space Telescope Science Institute. I really didn't think we could go further with the genre than that. And then the pandemic happened. And then I just couldn't believe that this was the only way everybody was getting together to try and kind of keep the thing moving. Yeah. Um, so it's a long way of saying, I would say right now, it seems like we're looking for whatever the next new thing is. But these days I, I bite my tongue anytime I say, I have any <laughs> idea what's going to happen. You could tell me, you know, tomorrow, oh, a meteor is gonna hit the earth. And, and uh, the only way we'll be able to ever sing together again is some weird virtual choir. So who knows? Yeah. Um, what I do know now, though, on a very personal level, is that I just conducted my first concert in two years. I conducted it last week. And that at, at BYU? That's right, at BYU. Yeah, and, that's and my alma mater. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, so you know, did you sing in the choirs there? I did. I was there as you were finishing up your, your album with Ron Staley. Were you in um, that group? No, I was in the group that rehearsed right after. So we'd see oh. you breeze through and, and go into the rehearsal. <laughs> but we, then we'd hear this amazing music and, oh, it was, it was glorious. So I, oh I appreciate it just being there. Uh, yeah, well, so yeah, then I worked with the men's, the men's choir, the women's choir, the concert choir, and the singers this time around, right? So you must have been in at least one of those groups. Uh, men's choir and concert choir, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah. so you know, it's just this mountaintop musical experience. And, um, but standing in that room and making music the old-fashioned way it's just not even there's nothing comparable in terms of the virtual choir experience yeah uh it's the virtual choir i'm really grateful that it helped keep people bonded during the time but what i was imagining in my mind there's a color wheel of experiences right you know how color wheels if you take opposite that size of the color wheel those colors complement each other that that virtual choirs and actually singing together are on the opposite sides of color of the color wheel. The experience couldn't be more different. And I, I really think they kind of figured it out 800 years ago, how, how we ought to do this. And that still seems to work just fine. <laughs> All right. So you're employed in speaking engagements, like the one you just did at BYU guest conducting. Um, I know it's hard to remember all of them, but are there one or two events or engagements that sort of stand out in your memory as being particularly impactful? As an actual speaking engagement, you mean? Speaking conducting? or conducting, either either one. What what sticks out in your mind? I mean, speaking, the, the, the first TED Talk that I did was beyond surreal. It was, it was 
and it, the surreal part of it was that this was in 2011, so I already knew that Ted was a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't really feel it until I was in the room and I walked out onto that, that dice. It was also, this is amazing. They had never seen me speak. Uh, Chris Anderson, who's the, the curator of Ted had seen the virtual choir and just invited me to come speak. And imagine this, the day before the talk, you do a little dress rehearsal. Okay. And then there's coaches who sit out in the audience. They're going to give you some, some ideas. And so I told them, imagine this, I, I'm starting by the way, I'm, I'm first of four like uh, there's a group of four of us and I'm the first in that little set to start to kick off the entire conference. I said to them, you know, I kind of just speak and I know that I've got about 18 minutes and without missing a beat, they said, well, could you just do the first minute for us? And so I did the first minute and their, their advice to me was, you don't move too much. Just try to stand in one place and talk. That's all they said to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, Good luck. <laughs> right. And I, I just look back now and I think that is such faith because, you know, like, like even you, you must do public speaking and you're, you're in front of people all day long. So, you know, the idea of like coming out and giving an 18 minute talk, that is a skill that takes a decade to perfect, right? Where you're like, you come out, you can, you feel that even just watching the shot clock in front of you, you as it counts down, that's a whole thing to be able to time. Oh, I've got five minutes left. I've got three minutes left, yeah. and, you know, dealing with multimedia. It's. And so I, I came out and I remember very distinctly, I walked out and then I just sort of scanned the audience and it's packed. And I could see Cameron Diaz and Bill Gates and Al Gore. Oh man. And then I just lost consciousness. It was like, okay, this is a thing, not just because of celebrities, but you could just, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but you could feel in the room that this was a, a happening. And, um, and then it's not in the Ted talk, but right after we showed that little clip of Luke Sarumque, we got an actual standing ovation. And, and it was a really genuine one. The audience just kind of lost their minds and I had to seat them back down and say, there's more. <laughs> and then I knew, I just thought, this is, this is extraordinary, right? Like I, I just, it's probably the first time in my life that I ever tasted the power of, of speech where you can just stand up and say what you believe and feel it rolling like gravity waves through the audience. It was, it was a singular experience. That's amazing. All right. I want to turn uh, a little bit to your process. So when you sit down to write a new piece, how do you start? Do you have a, a routine that you follow when you're starting a new piece or, or what, what do you do? If you're game, I'll talk you through this piece that I'm in the middle of right now. Sure. So, well, I'm toward the end now, but it's, um, so I found out that I was going to be commissioned to write an orchestra piece. And they wanted like a five to eight minute orchestra piece, an opener. So first, I, I kind of am just excited. It starts with just excitement. Wow, you get to write for the orchestra. And what can you do with the orchestra? And this might be this, this. And then different ideas kind of start to percolate. And then suddenly it just hits me like, a, like a, a, an arrow, thunk, that, okay, what I'll do is I'm going to take the Bach C major prelude, the one that starts the beginning of the well-tempered clavier. And because this is the 300th anniversary of that, that published work, I'm going to take and make like a seven minute orchestral fantasy using the exact chord change the Bach used, but then as like the way history smeared it, just smeared it across time. Hmm. So I don't know anything other than that, but I, it always starts with kind of a, a concept or a, a, an idea. And usually it starts with a title. So I knew, usually I've got titles like Godzilla Eats Las Vegas or A Boy and a Girl, if it's a poem, I, I've got a very clear idea of what 
the, the title will be. But in this case, I just thought Prelude in C, uncolorful title. And I kind of liked that. I thought, okay, that's good. There's a kind of formality to it and a, a stoicism. So all he knows, I've got this idea. And then what I do is I sit down and I draw these sketches, these very detailed sketches of what the piece might look like, what I call emotional architecture. And I don't write any of the notes down. I just write the shape of the piece. And I write lots of keywords for myself that might be describing other pieces, like I might say, like that moment in Debussy or that moment in the Thomas Newman score. Not that I want it to sound like that, but I want it to feel like that. Uh -huh. And I try to make it as visually detailed as possible. And I know from experience that once I've got that blueprint, then when I sit down to try to build the thing, then I will be able to just work on one bit of it at a time, right? So, okay, this, this bit before the climax, that's all I'm working on for the next three days. So instead of, otherwise I get completely paralyzed. And then I go looking for what I call my golden brick. And my golden brick is just this single central idea. And sometimes it's just a chord. Like, um, can you hear this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in Cloudburst, that's the golden brick. And the entire piece is based some way on those, those, that set of notes, yeah. although that was written really early. And so I didn't really have all this, this technique worked out. Now, what I came up with was because Bach was obsessed with the number 14, B-A-C-H, that each of those, right, when you assign them to their, their place in the alphabet, it spells a number 14. So I, I found this, or I created this little motive then that is, starts with two. Uh, let's see, uh, we'll do it in, in C, so. Then one for A, then three. And then eight in a row like this, right? Uh -huh. So B, A, C, H. And then once I finally had that, then I, re okay, that's it. Now I've got the, the piece that I want to build. I've got this building block, which is this kind of infinite well that I can constantly be going back to and drawing ideas from. And I say, that's it. Like, yeah, I'll figure it out. <laughs> then, that part's all fun. Then comes this part, which is just, is just building and building and building the thing, which I find uh, agony. And it's a lot of meticulous detail work, which my personality doesn't really like, but frankly is where the, where the piece can live or die. I've, I've had Absolutely. a number of pieces that start with a great idea and a great concept and great, th and then I just don't quite get there as I'm trying uh -huh. to build it. So that's what um, I'm doing right now. Well, that's awesome. Uh, so you, you've succeeded in so many different things, so many different fields. What's something you're not very good at? <laughs> These are amazing questions. <laughs> um, where do I even begin? Um, sadly, I don't think I'm very good at cooking. Oh, yeah? I, w I wish I was. I really wish I was. My wife's an amazing cook. And I would love to cook and cook like her and cook for her. Um, but I'm really a disaster with it. Uh, not a disaster. I, I can follow a recipe and I can, you can't, you don't something. burn cereal. So. <laughs> I could burn cereal, but, but you know, it's, it's, there's something magical. I suppose it's the same way with artists or composers, right? Where people look at them and they say, gosh, you're using the same 12 notes everybody else is, but you just, my wife can take three ingredients and a little bit of salt and make magic. I don't know how she does it. And I, I can try to replicate exactly what she's doing. And I, I just have no no gift for it. Well, speaking of your wife, when you and your family do get a well-deserved break, what's something you like to do together? We love to go to the water. Yeah. So I, I live here in Los Angeles now. 
And we used to live pretty close to the beach, but a year and a half ago, we moved about 20 miles away, which in LA terms is about an hour and a half. Right. <laughs> right. And, um, and so probably even on Saturday, the weather's turned really nice here and we'll probably just go to the beach. I love it. And my wife and I were married in Maui. We made this very special connection to water and, uh -huh. and we both believe she's always telling me that, that I, I go into the ocean one person and I come out a different person. Um, and they, they famously say the Pacific has no memory. And I really think that's true. I think it just washes mm. everything away. I love that. Well, speaking of water, one of my favorite virtual choirs is still water night. That's still my, one of my favorite ones. I love yeah, the visuals too. on that one. That's All right. Cool. So we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to listen to some of Eric's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Eric Whitaker. We're going to start today with Deep Field for Chorus and Orchestra. So I mentioned that this, this piece briefly in your bio at the top of the show, mentioned the collaboration with NASA and other organizations. How did this collaboration come about? Did they reach out to you? Where did it start? So it, it's a funny way that, that this all came together. I've, I mentioned astrophysics, even in high right. school, I was interested in this. I've been a space nerd since I was nine years old. And I mentioned also that I grew up in Northern Nevada. And so I got my first telescope when I was nine and out in that, the high desert, it's clear skies and zero light pollution. Uh -huh. And so since I can remember, I've just been enchanted by, by the stars and by space. So for years and years, I had this idea in the back of my mind to write a piece called Deep Field and to make it about the Hubble telescope. Mm. And and specifically just the feeling that I get looking at that deep field image. And for your listeners, they can Google it. And it, it's, it's, it's astonishing what you're looking at, right? In a tiny this is when it, it points into a, a specific point for, a, I don't remember how long it, it stayed there, but like discovered. Eleven, that's it. Eleven discovered days, all these galaxies. 385 exposure. Yeah, to, to all Earth-bound telescopes, it was completely dark. There was nothing there in that, that little sliver of sky. And then yeah, after 385 long, long exposures over 11 days, they collected all the lights. And then you can see in the image, there's over 3000 galaxies, yeah. right? not stars, but galaxies. Each of those galaxies representing hundreds of billions of stars. And it's, I still, when I look at it, I just, I, I'm not a religious person, but it's probably as close as I will ever come to having a religious feeling, which is just a sense of wonder and awe and fear. And it's just, I can't, comprehend the magnitude of what I'm looking at. And so forever, I've wanted to make a piece about that. I've wanted to make something that, that captured that feeling. But what was interesting is when I started to build it, then I, I learned a lot more about the circumstances around the Hubble telescope itself, which were that when they launched it in 1990, I don't know if you remember, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. it, it, right? The, there was a spherical aberration on the mirror and all the had images to, were coming yeah, back blurry. Had to keep you going up this? and fixing it. Yeah. Exactly. And fixing it, and they came up with a, a really clever solution to fix the software on the ground, basically put a contact lens, a virtual contact lens on the, on the telescope. And I found that story equally as compelling, this idea of mankind wanting to make this thing, to endlessly reaching out past, past their shores, and then building this machine, and then failing at the building, and then still going on. It's one of the things that I love most about NASA is that they just, they never say never. They just keep going and keep trying and keep pushing the limits of what is possible. So built into the piece is now that, that story as well, 
it very specifically is, is NASA's story and that, that very human journey. So I wrote the piece and the, the, the writing of it is funny because I was given a concert in 2015 with the Minnesota Orchestra, which is a terrific American orchestra. I mean, really top 10. And between you and me, I had no business conducting an entire concert <laughs> with the Minnesota Orchestra, but somehow uh, they, uh, they allowed me to come and do it. And knowing that I could choose the program, I told them, this would have been in September for a May concert, I said, I'm going to write a new 25-minute piece, and that will be on the program, knowing myself so well that it's the only way I would ever finish a piece like that, right? Is if I yeah. need the deadline. tickets for it, yeah, <laughs> better write something. And so I worked and worked and worked to make that piece over that year. And then we premiered it. So we premiered it as just a standalone orchestra piece, but at the end, everybody downloads an app to their cell phone and then they all push play at the same time. I give them a cue and it creates this shimmering sound in the, or in the audience live. And then the oh, choir wow. is surrounds the audience. So you really feel like you're inside the deep field image. And at that premiere was a man named Scott Wangen, who now has become a really good friend. And he was a, an engineer that worked on the, he's a payload specialist. He worked on the shuttle. And he came up to me afterwards and said, if you ever want to visit uh, Kennedy Space Center, here's my number and just let me know. And I don't know when I called it, but it was probably 20 seconds later. You know? <laughs> and I went down and that started this conversation with, with all the people at, at NASA. And then that just grew and grew. And over the years, I think I've been there four or maybe five times. I've seen a rocket launch and I've, I've visited the, wow. the vehicle assembly building and, and I'll, I'll spend as much time there as they'll let me. All right. Well, we are going to take a listen here to part of Deep Field. We don't have time to listen to the whole 25 minutes, uh, but we will listen to part of it uh, played here by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the Eric Whitaker Singers.
All right, our next piece today is A Boy and a Girl for Acapella Chorus. So on your website, you state that though you can't choose one composition to like more than another, that the four measures you wrote that musically paint the text never kissing may be the truest notes you've ever written. What do you mean by that? And do you still feel that way? Yeah, I, th I think I probably will always feel that way. So especially when setting poetry to music, I find, I feel that my job is, is less composer and more a water bearer hmm. that, that the, the poetry, good poetry, excellent poetry, like this poem by Octavio Paz, a boy and a girl has music just humming inside it. It's already bubbling. And so I always feel that, that my job is just to quiet myself and do what the, the poetry is already telling me to do. And when I tap into that thing, it seems very clear. It's still a ton of work and I still do all my pictures and find my golden brick, but there's an inevitability about the, the way a piece unfolds. Mm -hmm. Also, I, I never write the beginning to the end. I was, you know, I write the middle or I write the end and usually the beginning is written first or is written last. With a boy and a girl, I remember coming to that moment, never kissing. And it was like, I had done all my work. I had listened closely. I had a concept. I was at a place in my life where I think I knew uh, th there wasn't a lot of distance between what my brain wanted, what my heart wanted and the pencil and the paper. You know, that it was just, I was, I was in the flow during that part of my life. And it just, when I wrote it down, it had an inevitability that I've never really experienced before or since hmm. where there's only one way this could possibly go. And I remember looking at it and just feeling it. I, I say this with, with humility, that it just was elegant, that there wasn't any wasted notes. It just was what it needed to be. And it encapsulated the entire universe that the piece existed in, you know, it had all the, the essential strands of DNA that the rest of the piece had. And it was a way in a way, a climax of the piece, but a very humble and delicate climax instead of a boom. Uh -huh. And, and it's, it's just, um, I just conducted it last week at BYU. And even then I thought, wow, this is this, I hope this is the piece they play at my funeral, <laughs> not sleep. I hope it's this one. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a moment here and we are going to listen to a boy and a girl performed here by the Eric Whitaker singers. <laughs>
All right, our next piece is Equus. Mm. So this piece was originally for wind ensemble, though now available also for orchestra and optional choir. Uh, it's a wonderfully fast-paced piece that's in constant motion, hence the name Equus. Uh, so I understand this commission, the, uh, the commission for this piece took a while to complete. Uh, could you tell us the story behind Equus? Yes. So uh, another dear friend and a mentor of mine, a man named Gary Green, who taught... Uh, the wind ensemble at the University of Miami for years and years. He asked me to write a piece for his group. And specifically, he asked me to write something really difficult and virtuosic. And it's not really my thing. Um, I, I My aesthetic has always been to try to say the most with the fewest notes. If anything, I, I think of myself as what I call a dynamic minimalist which is that it's very minimal, but that it moves on when it gets too boring. <laughs> um, but with, with, with this piece, then it took a long time before I knew what I was going to do. And I even did these sketches. I did some of my first big emotional architecture drawings and made sketches. And I'd come up with that little theme, this thing. I, and I had the whole thing kind of flushed out. And I thought about maybe going that direction. But then at some point, I really was, I don't know if I had abandoned it, but I had I didn't think it would work. And then a dear friend of mine named Steve Bryant um, was visiting me and he was in the other room and I was, I was in my little studio, which is the guest bedroom, uh, playing through files and then throwing them away. And I played this thing at this, uh, and I heard him yell from the other room. He said, what is that? And I said, oh, it's just this thing. I'm probably gonna throw it away. And he said to me, Mark my words, if, if you don't use that, I'm going to. And some, I was it was funny at the time too, but it was, I thought, I trust Steve so much. He's got such impeccable taste. And I thought, well, maybe there's more there than I think there is. This happens a lot with me early on in, in a thing where I'm about to throw away an idea that ends up becoming the central idea, you know, much later on. And so, so I, I ran with it and, um, yeah, and I made Equus. Equus I love because it's, um, like you said, it's fast-paced, and it's the idea of a horse, Equus mm -hmm. being a horse, just running and running. Um, I never get to talk about this, but the beginning of this, this is how it starts, is an homage to the very first minimalist piece by Terry Riley, a piece called In C. Oh, yeah. And so it, it even starts in C, just the way Terry Riley's does. So it was a kind of way of, of a real nod at, okay, that's this, this minimalist universe that he created, I'll start the same way he did and then and then run in my own direction. Yeah, I love that. Your friend says, I'm going to use it. The gauntlet was thrown. You said, you're not going to use it. I'm taking it. So. <laughs> I'll leave, <laughs> leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I should say too, uh, with Steve, uh, 
Steve is really one of my best friends. He's more than a friend. He's like a brother. And even now with the prelude, he's done this with so many pieces um, where I call him up and I'm just lost. I'm lost in the weeds and I say, I don't know what to do. And I talk through him where I'm at in the piece and where I'm stuck. And every time he's able to say something that makes me look at it just slightly differently and then I'm able to continue going on. And in fact, Deep Field is dedicated to Steve because had it not been for Steve, I think I just would have been lost in the maze of that piece and never found my way out. Oh man, what a great friend. That's awesome. Yeah, truly. All right, well, we are going to listen here to Equus uh, played by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra with the BBC Singers and the BBC Symphony Chorus. Thank you. 
All right, our last piece today is hurt. So this is an interesting item in your catalog because it's an example of an arrangement of an existing melody. Uh, I don't I don't see a whole lot of that in your catalog. And this is an arrangement of Trent Reznor's song Hurt. So why did you choose this piece to arrange? Are, are you a Nine Inch Nails fan? I am massive. I'm, yeah. so, I'm, I'm, I love that you chose this. Thank you. So yeah, we mentioned Electronica, right? So I, I think on, on the Mount Rushmore of Electronica pop artists has to be Nine Inch Nails and, um, and Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And yeah, I've known that song since it was released in what, 1990, 1991. And there's a funny thing with pop music that I discovered only once I became a classical musician. Um, and I'm doing little air quotes, you know, because I don't, I'm still not sure I'm a classical musician, but, um, but is that, that oftentimes the classical music seemed to be taught and seemed to be received within the community really as if it was on a pedestal, that classical music was the greatest music ever written and everything else was sort of below it. And I disagree. I really disagree. I think maybe because I came from this pop background, I think the genres are wildly different. And mm -hmm. there's no question you listen to, you know, like Prokofiev Five, which is maybe my all-time favorite orchestral work. I just can't believe the craft and the musical intelligence that is going on in the piece. That being said, I think a piece like Hurt by Trent Reznor has equal, if different, gravity. It's it is a look into the human experience that very few artists in any genre are able to do as effectively as that piece does. It's unreal how he's able to take this idea of self-loathing and regret and this open wound that will never heal and lay it completely bare. You know, sometimes, especially in pop, but an artist will do something like that, but then they'll, they'll, they'll glamorize it a little bit so that it's, it's almost a way as, as if they're inviting love for the thing. Mm -hmm. But Trent Reznor throughout his, his, his career has just simply said, this is the way it is. And this is how ugly it is. And I always found that so moving that authenticity. So with, with hurt, I wanted to kind of, do my thing with it. You know, I wanted to elevate it to this place where I, I feel it deserves to be, which is that the lyrics and the harmonic changes and the melody in and of itself are, it's an extraordinary work of art. And so I think that's, that's where I started. I also arranged um, Enjoy the Silence, the Depeche Mode song hmm. for acapella chorus. And it's, I feel the same way about that, that song. Have it's, you heard, it, have you heard Trent's, you I was going to say, have you heard Trent's uh, unplugged version of Hurt? with him yeah. just at the acoustic piano. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Right, his voice, you can hear in his voice yeah. that he's, he's, not, he's not being a rock star. He's not trying to even please fans. He's, no, he's, he's telling what's inside. Right, it's, an, it's a really rare thing. And uh, I, I am instantly drawn to that kind of authenticity. Yeah. And I have, a, I have a decent list of pop songs that I'd love to do this treatment to that all have some version of it. They're not all, all as dark but they're all what I just think are truly authentic uh, expressions of, of the human experience. They just happen to be pop music. Yeah. Well, you know, you're the second composer this season that has uh, been a fan of Trent Reznor and it's making me want to go find out more about him and listen to more of his music. 
Yeah, have Fantastic. you listened to much? I mean, not a whole lot. I, I never really got into Nine Inch Nails, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to a deep dive soon. Uh, yeah, it's it's really. If you ever really want to do the deepest dive, um, you should talk to Steve Bryant. And St Steve is maybe the world's greatest Nine Inch Nails fan, and he <laughs> knows every track and every every remix and every unplugged version. And maybe he could guide you in a yeah. in, in a in a gentle way. It's a dark, a dark path to go down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a listen to Hurt here performed by the Eric Whitaker Singers.
All right. So Eric, usually I ask, what are you working on now? But you've already told us about your prelude in C. Is there anything else that you is on the uh, on the burner for for later that you can tell us about? Yeah, after that is something on the other side of the, the color wheel. So uh, a couple of years ago, right before the, the lockdown, I, I premiered a little chamber opera, a Christmas piece called Gift of the Magi. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know that Christmas story. Yeah. Yeah, it's this sweet little Christmas story that my dad used to read to us every Christmas. And the thing I premiered was, was about 25 minutes long, a couple of characters. And then immediately, I mean, even during the rehearsals, I knew, okay, there's a whole bunch of other things I want to write with this. And so I'm expanding that out. And it's, it'll be about 35, 40 minutes when I'm done with it. And then we'll premiere that in November, this, this new version of it. Is that just on the same story or other O. Henry stories as well? No, that's it. Just on that same oh, story. Oh, just on the same story. Okay. I wrote the libretto to it and it's, um, it just, it couldn't be more sweet and innocent and melancholy and Christmassy and, and, um, it's, it's actually nice. Every time I go to work on that thing, I, I realized when I started writing a couple of years ago that, that I think that the thing that excites me more than anything these days is writing lyrics. I get really excited by that and, and mm. thinking about character and writing librettos and, and, you know, even like the Godzilla script. I love writing. I love, I'm fascinated by, by the ability to write screenplays or librettos and then have them have characters somehow explode off the page. And so, so every time I think, even now when I'm thinking about getting finished with Prelude and C and then going back to the opera, I smile thinking, oh, I can't wait to go back in that world and work on that. That's awesome. So where, where can my listeners learn more about you? Where are you best found online? Hmm. I wonder. Um, I suppose YouTube. And I only say YouTube because it seems to be the world's library now. <laughs> I've got a 16-year-old son, and I think he's learned more. He's a jazzer. And I think he's learned more about the history of jazz on YouTube than than anywhere else you know i don't think he's ever read, read a book about it but he seems to know every jazz musician and every recording that ever lived um so i, I suppose youtube i um i even weirdly trust the algorithm you know you click one video and then all right they recommend this one i'll try that one let's see where that takes me this one awesome i, I'm, I will, I'm love the recommendation what's the fight be flattered if anybody wants to find out more <laughs> well hey listeners out there if you are enjoying today's interview with eric whitaker or the previous episodes please consider supporting movable dough by becoming a subscribing member visit anchor.fm slash movable dough and click the support button for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the music moving well eric whitaker i could literally talk to you all day thank you for joining me today on movable dough uh, I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be here. Thanks, Steve. My guest today was composer Eric Whitaker. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>